Just as a disclaimer, we want you to know that some of the movies that we will be reviewing were shot in a different time and era where people of race and sex were not treated equally. We understand this and hope you do too. The movies or anything that happened on the sets are not the views of this podcast or what this show is intended to be all about. Exactly. And we want to give due diligence in presenting the movie and not the views of the cast or directors or anyone involved. But we also feel it's necessary to let the audience know some of the background information to get a feel for what was happening at the time of shooting the film. Again, we hope you understand that we do not agree with everything that went on and we just want to give out the information. And with that being said, hope you enjoy the show. of dizziness, a swimming in the head, figuratively a state in which all things seem to be engulfed in a whirlpool of terror, as created by Alfred Hitchcock in the story that gives new meaning to the word suspense. I don't want to die. There's someone inside me and she says I must die. Scotty, don't let me go. A beautiful girl haunted by the desperate, unexplainable urge to destroy herself. A man possessed by the paralyzing vertigo that made him afraid of high places. Easy now. I know, I know. Ah, where's the sense? Yeah, I look up, I look down. I look up, I look... What was the strange attraction that brought these two together in spite of the dark forces that tore them apart? The specter from the past that drew her to the ancient headstone in the mission graveyard. The compulsion that drove her relentlessly to the point of no return. The story of a love so powerful it broke down all barriers between past and present, between life and death, between the golden girl in the dark tower and the tawdry redhead that he tried to remake in her image. I let you change me. Will that do it? If I do what you tell me, will you love me? Yes. All right. All right, then I'll do it. They don't care anymore about me.
Greetings and welcome to the Tragedy of Cinema, episode number 10. Terrence, it's been 10, 10. episodes that's, so That's far. amazing. You've made it so I can't far. believe I've lasted 10 episodes with you. <laughs> uh, we have a very special episode for our 10th episode. It is our actually our first listener's episode, and this is coming all the way from Newark, Delaware, and it was requested by Emily... Aikianelli. I hope I pronounced that right. She sent me a pronunciation. Um, she has basically been with us since the very first episode. And thank still you listens. So much. I don't yes, know why she puts you. up with us. A but special yes, thank you. Special thank you. <laughs> so she said uh, this is one of, uh, by the way, the movie we'll be doing is Vertigo by Alfred Hitchcock. She said this is the most brilliant of all of Hitchcock's films, in her opinion. She also said this is also one of her favorite movies, so we better not mess it up. And uh, she, <laughs> I'm just kidding about that last part. Uh, she has uh, not looked up any info or trivia on this, so she's oh, pretty okay. excited to so listen to the be podcast. Fresh. Right? I, I will say this is one of his really underrated movies, uh, just because, I, it, once again, I agree with her that it's a really good movie, and you never hear about it. Because you always hear about pretty much Psycho. Like pretty much. Nine yeah. times or ten. the birds. Or the birds, exactly. But you never hear about Vertigo. I'm not going to so lie. It, this is the first time I've ever seen it. When I sit down and watch this yeah. for her. So we'll, we'll hear your thoughts we on We will hear my the, thoughts. Uh, at the end of this. So, but before we dive too much further into there, Terrence, um, I've got a question for you. Let's do it. What, in your opinion, are the top three most famous film scores of all time? Ooh, okay. Uh, Star Wars for one. Which Let's, Star Wars? You know, interestingly enough... Uh, the one that you hear a bunch and that like you know people still use and like you it kind of sticks with you is um, the the Phantom Menace. Interestingly enough, I'm going prequels. I know, right? Uh, everybody <laughs> hates those, but like it had a, a really good score, especially the um, Duel of the Fates. I believe it was called. Uh, that particular song uh, is pretty iconic, despite people's disdain for the prequels. Uh, next would be Lord of the Rings. Um, Which one? <laughs> that's the thing. Like all of them together, because they, they they do reuse a lot of them. There's you know certain themes that each character has. Uh, they all had an amazing amazing scores. I I can't really choose just one, uh, just because I. I never just watch one. I watch them all in sequence every time. Like, <laughs> but, uh, and then third, third one. I'm gonna have to go with I'm trying to think of like you know what sticks in my head as far as like film scores that are incredible. I mean, you have always. a lot. You have Indiana Jones. That one came to my mind. You yep. have Jaws. Yep. I personally like Dragonheart. Yes, Dragonheart. I think it's a very outstanding soundtrack. Um, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves has another amazing score. Tell you what, I'll go with the musical for the last one. What? Uh, Yeah, I know. Is it The Wiz? I love The Wiz, (laughs) but no. uh, And it's actually a recent movie, this one. I'm going to go with Greatest Showman. Oh, nice. I love that movie. But would you really consider that a score? Because doesn't a film score usually no no words? That's true. That's true. Um, Man. There's so many. I'm just trying to think of like one that really sticks in my mind. Give, give me your your three, and I'll think of my third one. Uh, obviously, Star Wars. Just anytime you hear the the drums, dun, 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 you know, oh, the, yeah, the 20th yeah. Century Fox, and then Star Wars a long time ago in a galaxy far away, then oh, boom, yeah. it hits you. And jo- pretty much anything John Williams does, yeah, exactly. it could be the top three. 
and then in my got, personal opinion, you know, Imperial March and oh, uh, so you got the celebration medal ceremony yep. and all that. So, so, so many iconic. Okay, songs. that's that's uh, good. I mean, we'll just say John Williams one, two, and three. Yeah, probably <laughs> ten through ten. You know? <laughs> um, all right, Terrence. After this is a quote. After all, tomorrow is another day. Is the last line from which movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture in nineteen thirty nine? Wait, what was it again? Tomorrow. After all, tomorrow is another day. Is the last line from which movie that won the Academy Award for Best Picture in 1939? Oh man, I know the line. That's what's like really getting me right now. I don't know. I know our audience is laughing at you because let Probably. me just let me just say another. Let me let me read this last part again from the movie that won yeah. the Academy Award yep. for Best Picture yep. in 1939. 1939. Uh, we just covered it last week. With the wind. There you go. <laughs> I wanted to, you know, I want other people are screaming at their, at their radios or their it's, it's one of those things where, like, in my mind, I'm like, I think it's gone with the wind, but I don't want to embarrass myself and be wrong. <laughs> and you ever get that? Like, no. Oh, I do that all the time. No. It's terrible. And then, and then when I say, that's what I was thinking, it doesn't. Seem like well, it's not it like this is Jeopardy and you got a double Jeopardy going and you're going to say the wrong thing and lose a bunch of money. It is in my mind. No, you're just going to get a bunch <laughs> of bad reviews for us because the resident millennial can't answer a question. Uh, by the way, I had somebody tell me, he's like, man, you need to get Terrence some caffeine or something. He's like, because you just shred him on the podcast. I was like, he's used to it. <laughs> but uh, we do have a table full of monster drinks today, so hopefully Terrence does stay awake. I am awake this time. So with that being said, we're going to start and dive into episode 10. From Alfred Hitchcock, Vertigo. Terrence, take her away. All right. Vertigo, release date, July 21st, 1958. Its budget was really close to 2.5 mil. Uh, and by today, that is 21 mil. Uh, almost 22. It, uh, yeah, almost 22. Uh, gross USA, it made 3 mil. They're like 3.2 mil, right? Uh, and then by today's standards, you're looking at 28.2 mil. Uh, so it didn't actually make that much uh, compared to a lot of the big hitters that we've covered. Um, let's see, cumulative gross worldwide gross. Uh, we're looking at twenty five mil as of January nineteen ninety eight, and that's uh, and then also two million two hundred and twenty one million uh, <laughs> estimated in twenty nineteen. So it made. Money later, it made like, a comeback. Yeah, it made a comeback. So basically, it was one of those. You can almost consider this a cult classic, pretty much Hitchcock. So that's interesting. Most of Hitchcock's films are. That's true. You get a point. Uh, director, obviously Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, writing credits: We're looking at Alec Koppel, uh, screenplay, uh, and Samuel A. Taylor, screenplay as Samuel Taylor. Uh, Perry Bielu. Boilu, Boilu, well, just Boilu. Uh, based on the novel uh, Diantre Les Mortis. So, okay, so he was the author, right? Uh, Thomas, ooh, uh, <laughs> Narkiak, Narkiak, Narsi, Narsijak. Yeah. Uh, based on the novel Diantre Les Mortis. You know, it's funny that you pronounce the foreign names better than you do the. I know, it's so weird. <laughs> All right, and now we're moving to Maxwell Anderson, a contributing writer who was uncredited. Now we're moving into the technological aspects. We're looking at runtime of two hours and eight minutes, 
Uh, it doesn't feel like that when I watched it. it never mm-hmm. does. It's one of those movies where you're so Engrossed. in tune to it that you, you just fly, time flies. Uh, and then we're looking at uh, two hours and nine minutes in the restored version. So we got an extra minute somewhere. Uh, the sound mix is mono, Westerx recording system, a DTS 70 millimeter prints, looking at another color movie. Aspect ratio 1.50 by 1, negative ratio. Uh, and 1.85 by 1 uh, intended ratio. So basically what we're looking there is uh, the intended ratio and then uh, a bit smaller in its actual release, right? Uh, Its camera was Mitchell VistaVision cameras. It's uncredited. Uh, I do believe we have covered this. I'm like 90% sure. So if you haven't, let me know and I'll make sure to cover it. Uh, Laboratory, it was recorded. uh, Technicolor. Film length, we're looking at 3,502 meters. That's 14 reels. And by the way, reels is like, uh, if you look at sort of any movie that covers like those giant discs, right, uh, that they, they store them in, uh, that's they space, that's a reel, right? Uh, you iconically see it when, they, uh, when they're storing away uh, like a film that should never be seen. We just take all the reels and like store it somewhere. Or if you've ever seen like Disney from the vault where they open up it up and then they pull out the reel out of Yeah, the- there you go. So that, that's what we're talking about when, when we talk about the reels. So 14 of those reels is this movie. Uh, negative format, 35 millimeter, horizontal, Eastman, color negative film, type 5248. The cinematographic process, we're looking at Super Vista Vision, 1996 restoration. Uh, Vista Vision motion picture uh, high fidelity as Vista Vision. We're looking at printed film format 70 millimeter uh, digital. So we're looking at the digital cinema package DCP. I have covered that. Uh, 35 millimeter. And now we are moving into the awards. So the Academy Awards USA 1959. They were nominated for best art direction set decoration, black and white or color. Uh, and that was prepared by Hal uh, Priera and Henry Bumstead and Sam Comer, Frank R. McEvely, and that's it. Um, then they were also nominated for Best Sound, and that was by George Dutton, Paramount SSD. So no winning on the Oscars, but some nominations, which is always it's, it's a, a high a honor. To yeah, be exactly, it's a, it's a feat within itself. Uh, now we're moving on to the Academy of Science Fiction, Fantasy, and Horror Films, USA 2013. You know what? Since we've mentioned this in almost every single one, I, I, I want to figure out when if when this happens so I can tune into it. And, <laughs> just watch just, it. Yeah, exactly. Because I've never heard of it until we did the podcast. Well, I'm not even, is it even going on anymore? You know what I mean? I I, I would think so. I guess we'll find out. It's been pretty prevalent in most of our... Terrence, make a note. <laughs> making a note. Terrence is making actually, a note. I'm going to make a note. Yeah, are you actually going to look I'm, something up for the podcast? I'll, I'll, be, I'll be shocked. <laughs> Millennials. Do you need me to write it down for you, too? I got it. All right. Um, Saturn Award Best DVD Blu-ray Collection uh, for North by Northwest, The Birds, Psycho, Rear Window... Torn Curtain, The Man Who Knew Too Much, Rope, sh- and Shadow of a Doubt, and Family Plot. So I think that was a uh, the, the like the collection of Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, films, so Al- basically his his collection, right? right? Uh, as part of 
Alfred Hitchcock, The Masterpiece Collection, uh, the film Saboteur, 1942, uh, The Trouble, and much more. Now, uh, Directors Guild of America, USA, 1959. They were nominated for the DGA Award, Outstanding Directional Achievement in Motion Pictures, Alfred Hitchcock. All right, and then... Moving on with my news here. National Film Preservation Board, 1989. They won something. Uh, They won the National Film Registry. The National Society of Film Critics Awards, USA 1997. They won the special citation. uh, That was for James C. Kartz, Robert A. Harris, for their restoration of Alfred Hitchcock's classic film. So we got a restoration award. That's pretty interesting, right? Uh, New York Film Critics Circle Awards, 1996. They won uh, something here, too. They won another special citation award for Distinguished Restoration. Once again, James C. Katz uh, and Robert A. Harris, uh, the MCA and Universal. Online Film and Television Association, 2003. Another winner. Uh, OFTA Film Hall of Fame Motion Picture. Uh, San Sebastian International Film Festival, 1958, more winning. Hey. So everything with the Oscars. And you're right? a winner, and you're a winner, and you're a winner. <laughs> uh, silver Seashell Afri- uh, and Alfred Hitchcock. Did you just say a silver seashell? Silver sea. that's what it says, silver <laughs> seashell. So a winner, that's one of their awards, um, is a silver seashell. You get a silver seashell. It's not gold, though, I guess. Not gold. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, winner, uh, Zuzella. Zulueta Zulueta Prize Best Actor James Stewart So first mention of Acting Here And then Oh uh, They tied with Kirk Douglas For The Vikings In 1958 Interesting right Uh, Satellite Awards 2005 They were nominated uh, For the Satellite Award Of Outstanding Classic DVD Once again This is His collection uh, for Alfred Hitchcock, the Masterpiece Collection. Society of Camera Operators. Now, I left this one on here because that's an, we haven't seen this, uh, but that's interesting that uh, they highlight camera operators, you know, some of the crew. So uh, that's why I left it there. It's very interesting. And that was in 2001. And that's very interesting that it was in 2001, too. So it was obviously nominated or gave its respect later exactly. yep. than when it first came out. Uh, and so winner for Historical Shot. Uh, Leonard J. South. And now, the cinematography in this, very good. I mean, <laughs> we'll like, it, it, yeah. <laughs> uh, Village Voice Film Poll, 1999. They were nominated for a VVFP Award, uh, Best Film of the Century, third place. Huh. Interesting. Uh, and then finally. Wait a minute, before you oh, do that, yeah. do you know when the Academy Award started? What year? Ooh, uh, I want to say. The 20s. Yeah, it was uh, May 16th, 1929. That's when it started. Uh, 1929. So. Uh, I got this. I got yeah. this entry right. We were close. <laughs> All right. So now the synopsis for Vertigo. A former police detective juggles. Yeah. Uh, a former police detective juggles wrestling with his personal demons and becoming obsessed with a hauntingly beautiful woman. Very good, Terrence. Very good. So now we're going to go ahead and jump into the cast. <clears throat> We have James Stewart as John Scotty Ferguson. We have Kim Novak as Madeline Elster and Judy Burton or Barton. We have Barbara Bell Geddes, Midgewood. 
Tom Helmore, Gavin Elster, Henry Jones played the coroner, Raymond Bailey, Scotty's doctor, Ellen Corby, manager of McKittrick Hotel, Constantine Shane, Pop Liebel, Lee Patrick, car owner mistaken for Madeline, and Alfred Hitchcock. Even though he was uncredited, he was the man walking past El- Elster's office. So once again, he pops up in his movies. Always has a little Always cameo has. of himself. So if you're watching any other of his movies, try to find him. So um, we, for the biography, I chose Kim Novak. I wanted to do somebody that's because I'm sure we're going to cover another Jimmy Stewart movie. Yeah. So I know he, we can cover him. So she was born in February 13, 1933. Her birth name is Marilyn Pauline Novak. Her nickname is The Lavender Girl. Huh. She did not get along well with the teachers in school. <laughs> I was like, Terrence, it's you in another life, buddy. <laughs> I actually got uh, along great with teachers. When you were there. <laughs> What's that? <laughs> when you went. Uh, she won an art scholarship to the Art Institute of Chicago, but went to Wright Junior College instead. Her first job while still in high school was modeling teen fashions for a local department store. While on break from school, Kim and two of her classmates decided to go to Los Angeles and stand in line to be an extra in a movie called The French Line in 1953. Fortunately, Kim's personal life has been, the contra- has been on the contrary to her career. Since 1976, Kim has been happily married to Robert Mal- Malloy, a veterinarian who shares her passion for animals and nature. Kim and her husband live on a ranch in Oregon where they raise llamas and horses and frequently go canoeing. Hmm. Kim is also an accomplished artist who expresses herself in oil paintings and sculptures. She went on a personal strike in 1957, protesting her current salary of $1,250 per week. Hmm, interesting. Chosen by Empire Magazine as one of the 100 sexiest stars in film history at number 92 in 1995. For a scene in The Picnic, 1956, in which she had to cry, she asked director Joshua Logan to pinch her black and blue off screen, telling him, I can only cry when I'm hurt. Yeah, that is one of the harder things when it comes to acting is crying on cue. That's an incredibly difficult thing and, and very we, talented. And we've seen that with off. well, we've seen that with Haley Joel Osment when we covered the Sixth Sense about yep. how his dad said yell at him. Yeah, know? exactly. Uh, she visited Sammy Davis Jr. in the hospital shortly before his death. Wow. Okay. Was seriously injured in a horseback riding accident in 2006 and broke her ribs, puncturing punctured a lung, and had nerve damage. She made full recovery within a year. I mean, she's she's as far as I can tell, she's still alive. Yeah. So she's pushing 90, 95, 96? So yeah, yeah. I mean, man, wow. <laughs> so here's some quotes I wrote down. For every answer, I like to bring up a question. Maybe I'm related to Alfred Hitchcock, or maybe I got to know him too well. But I think life should be that way. They'll always remember me in Vertigo, 1958, and I'm not that good in it, but I don't blame me because there are a couple of scenes where I was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. I don't feel I ever reached my potential as an actress. I certainly didn't try to promote myself. I'm not a pushy person, so there's always that turmoil for me. Do you wait for something to happen, or do you make something happen? I've always believed that if something is meant to be, it just works out. Yet I would see other actors fighting for themselves, fighting for the great roles, which is right. Are you supposed to push the door open, or do you wait for an open door? My choice was to move away from Hollywood, but I always thought that if a role was really right for me, it would somehow come to wherever I was. Interesting. Yeah, you do get odds and ends as far as like filming goes. Uh, if you're not obviously around L.A. or in L.A. or in another notable film, uh, filming place, which I think right now they all want to film in Atlanta, uh, 
So there's got to be something with the tax credits. It is, yeah. Typically, they go wherever it is cheapest for them to film. Uh, so if you're not in those, you know, big hub areas, it's very far and in between that you know they'll venture out and record somewhere else. So that's very interesting that she has that take. By the way, uh, she's 86 years old. Yep, still around, uh, and she was she's born in Chicago. Yep. Uh, her most famous roles, obviously, is Vertigo, the movie we're covering. But she was also in 19 episodes of the TV show Falcon Crest. Do you remember Falcon Crest? I know you don't. <laughs> I know. not That one That one is beyond me. I know some of our listeners out there like me will remember that. So, all right. Here we go. Are you ready for some unknown facts and trivia, Terrence? Let's jump into it. Stay awake. Uh, the opening title sequence, designed by Saul Bass, makes this the first movie to use computer graphics. Oh, okay. Cool. Uncredited second unit cameraman Ermin Roberts invented the famous zoom out and track in shot, now sometimes called contra zoom or trom- trombone trombone shot, to convey the sense of vertigo to the audience. The view down the mission stairwell cost nineteen thousand dollars for just a couple of seconds of screen time. And that is a very famous technique used nowadays. Oh yeah, uh, I know so you get a kick out of that because you absolutely. cover all that technological yeah. stuff. This movie was unavailable for three decades because its rights, together with four other movies of the same period, were brought were bought back by Sir Alfred Hitchcock and left as part of his legacy to his daughter. They've been known for long been known for long as the infamous Five Lost Hitchcocks amongst movie buffs that were re-released in theaters around 1984 after an approximately 30-year absence. The other movies are The Man Who Knew Too Much in 1956, Rear Window, which was another great movie, in 1954, oh, yeah. Rope in 1948, and The Trouble with Harry in 1955. The zoom out track and shots were done with miniatures laid on their sides since it was impossible to do them vertically. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Sir Alfred Hitchcock had originally wanted to use his now famous vertigo zoom in Rebecca in 1940, but due to the lack of technology at the time, he couldn't do it. The technique was inspired by a time when Hitchcock had fainted during a party. <laughs> <laughs> that absolutely. I, you know, makes I, sense. I, yeah. I just want. I wish I could have met him, man. I bet he was quite the character. You it, know what I mean? Just, I, I will say. Uh, I don't. I don't remember if he uses language or not. So I'd be careful looking this up, right? But there is a audio of him filming a commercial, and he's just drunk filming this commercial and it's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> sir alfred hitchcock was embittered at, at the critical and commercial failure of this movie in 1958 he blamed this on james stewart for looking too old to attract audiences anymore hitchcock never worked with stewart previously one of his favorite collaborators again hmm. and, and he had a great career james oh, stewart man yeah, absolutely the Empire Hotel, where James Stewart eventually finds Kim Novak, is, as of 2009, the Hotel Vertigo, formerly the, the York, located at 940 Souter Street, in the heart of San Francisco. Novak's character lived in room 501, which still retains many of its aspects captured in the movie. That's pretty awesome. I mean, not, why why get rid of a thing right. that's famous, you know? I'm sure you can capitalize on the money. Hey, stay here in this room. Yeah, absolutely. This this scene in this film. You know, and I'd have that room set up. (laughs) Especially in a place like San Fran, yeah. Right. Sir Alfred Hitchcock reportedly spent a week filming a brief scene where Madeline stares at a portrait in the Palace of the Legion of Honor just to get the lighting right. Man, that that's dedication, man. The whole week just to get the lighting. Yeah. In a later interview, Sir Alfred Hitchcock said he believed Kim Novak was miscast and the wrong actress for the part. You know, he did not hold back on... Criticism. Of, of his the choices he made. You know what I mean? Kim Novak told interviewers that she did not wear a bra when appearing as Judy. Actresses performing braless was an unusual occurrence in films made under the 1934 to 1968 Motion Picture Production Code. 
Novak claimed it was this element of the Judy costuming that helped her feel more comfortable as Judy than as Madeline, a character whose costumes wore, were more severe and stiff. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. When Kim Novak questions Sir Alfred Hitchcock about her motivation in a particular scene, Hitchcock is said to have answered, Let's not probe deeply into these matters, Kim. It's only a movie. Oh, my gosh. That's, that's <laughs> as great as a director it is. he is. That is, like, the wrong answer right. to give. I mean, <laughs> yeah, it's Hitchcock. Uh, there is a 25-year age difference between James Stewart and Kim Novak, who were 49 and 24 years old, respectively, when the movie was shot in 1957. Oh, wow. That's a, that's a pretty big difference. Uh, well, he's fading. He opened up another monster. Uh, costume designer Edith Head and director Sir Alfred Hitchcock worked together to give Madeline clothing an eerie appearance. Her trademark gray suit was chosen for its color because they thought it seemed odd for a blonde woman to be wearing all gray. Also, they added a black scarf to her white coat because of the odd contrast. Yeah, blonde and, and um, gray. gray is in not a great contrast you know as if you're you know color coding which a lot of costuming but it kind of uh, set the tone for the movie too you know what i mean there was a lot of yeah. the colors they chose in this movie were fantastic because and that, it wasn't too flashy oh yeah you know what i mean it just it flowed well and that that's props to costuming like every movie uh, we've covered every movie you watch um, costuming gives a lot of thought into what their characters are wearing it's just not like hey they're wearing these clothes there's there's much thought put into you see, it. See, I always go back. Every time I hear costume design, I immediately go back to the Shire, <laughs> the, the Lord of the Rings, because the hobbits wearing them costumes, you know, it was just perfect. Okay. The lighting changes when important. Uh, the lighting changes when important events occur. For instance, when Scotty first sees Madeline in Ernie's restaurant, the light around her becomes unnaturally bright for a moment. While Scotty is listening to the story of Madeline's ancestry in the bookshop, it gets very dark. Once he exits the store, it brightens again. When Scotty first sees Judy made us complete uh, up completely as Madeline, or Madeline, she is lit by a blurred, ghostly green light, the reflected light from the neon side outside the window. So then again, Hitchcock getting that lighting technique done oh, yeah. right. And that, it, it's a very difficult thing. Lighting is always a big trouble on set. Kim Novak does not speak until more than one-third into the movie. That's interesting. It's kind of like... Remember when we did Psycho? Yep. Norman Bates didn't have anything until... Like or not Norman through. Bates, the... Not Vivian Leigh, the other one. Uh, her sister. Yeah. She, she didn't even make an appearance until like two-thirds of the way through the movie. Yeah. Uh, Midge, Midge's remarks about the cantilevered brassier designed by an aircraft engineer are a reference to the story that Howard Hughes had an engineer invent a new type of underwired bra for Jane Russell. Bernard Herrmann's score is largely inspired by Richard Wagner's Tristan and, and Isolde, which, like this movie, is also about a doomed love. And we remember Bernard Herrmann, don't we? Yeah. What did he do? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I know the name. I just don't remember. He's what... the one that uh, Hitch did Hitchcock Psycho, remembering okay. double the salary. So uh, we're, 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 once, <laughs> we're looking. Yeah, I remember. No, I don't have no clue. Uh, <laughs> Go but, we're, you know, we're looking at... Uh, you know, when a director finds a good crew, he tends to use a lot of the same people, obviously. Expe well, it's like uh, a good, uh, especially for the music. Yeah. They'll, they'll keep them. Exactly, yeah. San Juan Batista, the Spanish mission which features in key scenes in the movie, doesn't actually have a bell tower. It was added with trick photography. The mission originally had a steeple, but it was demolished following a fire. Hmm. Sir Alfred Hitchcock thus described this movie to Francis Truffiant, to put it plainly, 
The man wants to go to bed with a woman who is dead. <laughs> I was like, man, tried to sell it, huh? When this movie opened at San Francisco's legendary Castro Theater during its restored release in October of 1997, only a few months after the death of James Stewart, it did more business there than any other theater in the U.S. that weekend. Wow, okay. When Sir Alfred Hitchcock's wife, Alma, saw this movie, she said that she liked it, except for one shot where Kim Novak walks toward the San Francisco Bay, which she felt made Novak look too large on the screen. For years afterward, when discussing this movie, Hitchcock would insist that Alma hated it. (laughs) He took that one little criticism. Ah, she hated it. (laughs) This movie is often credited or blamed for creating or popularizing the misconception that vertigo means a fear of heights. For the record... The proper name for that condition is acrophobia, whereas vertigo is a sensation of rolling and loss of balance associated particularly with looking down from a great height, according to the Oxford Dictionary. Which they capture well with their cinematographer, <sighs> yes, cinematographer filming process. <laughs> um, um, there's one part of the movie um, that stuck out to me is like, you know, where he's he's been going to get help. He's like, look, he's like, I, I, he's like, take a step up. He's like, look, I'm up one step. I go down. I look up. I look. So they add yeah. another one. And I look up. I look down. And then they add another one. He goes, he says, I look up. I look down. I look up. I, and then he, his eye is at the right level to look outside the window and yep. catch the drop. And he's just like, <laughs> Poorly received by U.S. critics upon its release, this movie is now held as Sir Alfred Hitchcock's masterpiece the flower shop podesta baldocci has been in business in san francisco since 1871 okay that's cool even though another trivia reference says second unit cameraman ermin roberts invented the contra zoom the effect is oddly similar and nearly identical to a zoom and vertigo shot seen in hobson's choice in 1954 where a a drunk henry hobson is seen falling down a shaft into the basement of freddie beanstalk's shop this movie was released four years later, and other special effects elements in the movie oddly mirror what was seen in Hobson's Choice in 1954. So, did they steal it? Who knows? I mean, they definitely got credited for it right first. <laughs> uh, the movie's poster was as number three of the 25 best movie posters ever made by Premiere. It does have a nice poster. After additional location shoots at the Big Basin Redwood State Park and the Spanish mission San Juan Bautista, the cast and crew settled in at Paramount Picture Studio Soundstage for two months of filming uh, in the studio. Uh, Sir Alfred Hitchcock was in his element and could exert absolute control, though he had to share uh, some of his creative challenges. One very striking sequence is the kissing scene that occurs when Scotty has finally made Judy over as Madeline. As the couple kiss, the background slowly swirls and we lose equilibrium as we see Judy's apartment become the livery stables of San Juan Batista, settling, or setting for an earlier uh, emotional scene between Scotty and Madeline. The shot was archived with rear projection of the background plates, or achieved, sorry, with the rear projection of the background plates. The camera tracking slowly backed, then forward, and with James Stewart and Kim Noyeg revolving on a circular platform. A key visual here that is often missed is in that, as the camera circles, the scene switches to the stable at the mission where they first fell in love, and then back to the hotel room. These simultaneous movements were difficult to coordinate and to pull off without James Stewart and Novak getting dizzy. In one take, Stewart fell off and was slightly injured. Also, the green lighting in the hotel room earlier before Judy emerges from the bathroom is an indicator of Scotty's obsession, and when she emerges, she appears enveloped in it like a ghost drifting toward him. The ghost of his dream had returned. Principal f- photography was completed three days after the shot, just before Christmas 1957. Oh, wow. So there's some of that movie trivia. 
In 2012, this movie replaced Citizen Kane in 1941 in the Sights and Sound Critics Poll for the greatest movie of all time. Okay, very interesting. So, that's another movie that obviously we'll eventually cover. Um, but the, the notable, like, sort of onset special effects and camera work in that movie is also just as iconic as the uh, sh- uh, the the zoom in effect on, on in this. And oddly enough, that's another movie I've never seen. See, that's that's one of the reasons I started this podcast because I've looked at the like the top 100 movies of all time, you know, yeah. IFI, whatever. And I was like, man, like the t- there's like six in the top 20 I had never even heard of. You yep. know, I mean? Scotty's apartment actually exists, and it boasts the improbable, stunning view of Colt Tower through its living room window, which looms over Scotty and Madeline in the apartment scene. True aficionados can find it near Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco by positioning themselves in the same relation to the tower that is seen through the window. Have you been to San Fran? I have, yeah. Uh, when I was younger, uh, my uncle and aunt used to live out there, so we went out and it's it's very fun. They had, those, uh, had the trolleys and the big hill. Oh, yeah, up. yeah. We had the trolley. And then there's that one iconic road that sort of it, uh, it sort of swerves, you know, Back and forth, and back and yeah, it, it, it snakes down the road, and only tourists go there because it is the most annoying thing to drive down. <laughs> <laughs> like anyone who's from San Francisco or knows San Francisco knows to avoid that road. Maybe skateboarding would down it would be pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> I actually think it made it into one of the Tony Hawk games. <laughs> oh, great! <laughs> Sir Alfred Hitchcock's cameo. He is seen carrying what has been called a musical instrument case, but there is no musical instrument shaped like that. It is a case that for a very high-quality costume mask of the Doctor of the Plague, much more appropriate for the Master. Interesting. Okay. So, Plague mask. Yeah. Case. Sir Alfred Hitchcock originally wanted Vera Miles to play Judy, who was in Psycho. Yep. But she became pregnant and was therefore unavailable. See, and that's just that just goes to show, you know, some of these people that got cast may have not have been cast, but they were the right choice just due to the circumstances. Exactly. And it turned yep. out beautifully. When Madeline recovers in, in Scotty's apartment from her fall into the bay, he waits on his sofa. Seen on his coffee table is a copy of the 1950s Pulp Men's periodical Swank, which consisted of a mix of cheesecake pictures and action-adventure stories by contemporary writers. Oh, man. <laughs> Kim Novak already had a reputation for being difficult, so perhaps it was not a surprise when she refused to show up for work one day. She was striking for more money from her home studio, Columbia Pictures, who was paying her $1,250 a week, even though they were receiving $250,000 for her loan out for this movie and one more movie. The ploy worked, and Novak got a raise. Hey, at least I mean, she got what she was going for. Yeah, right? pretty much. And that happens a lot, too, where you get notable actors, actresses, who are just incredibly difficult. But because they're good, they, they deal with them. Bruce Willis is one of those. (laughs) (laughs) The word vertigo is only spoken once in the movie towards the beginning by Scotty to Midge. John Ferguson's apartment is located at the corner of Jones and Lombard, just one block east of the famed steep switchback block of Lombard Street. When Scotty is telling Madeline, Madeline around or driving around the city, the driving route is geographically correct. This is unlike most movies where routes driven are not accurate and may jump from one part of a city to another like Bullet in 1968. So it is possible to drive the exact route that is shown in the movie. Nice. Ranson House of San Francisco was a famous and trendy high-end boutique. It closed in 1976. Scotty and Midge supposedly went to college together, but in real life, James Stewart was 14 years older than Barbara Bell Geddes. 
Sir Alfred Hitchcock switched Pierre Boulier and Thomas Narsajak's story from Paris to San Francisco and changed their ending, in which the enraged hero strangles the mysterious woman upon discovering her trickery. And that's something we're going to talk about at the end of this, is the ending of this movie. Uh, We'll we'll talk about it, but I'm still kind of confused of what happened, but we'll talk about it. (laughs) Uh, The screenplay is credited to Alec Koppel and Samuel A. Taylor, but Koppel didn't write a word of the final draft. He is credited for the contractual reasons only. Taylor read neither the Koppel script nor the original novel. He works solely from Sir Alfred Hitchcock's outline of the story. Oh, wow. Okay. Many critics attributed this movie's failure to James Stewart, who was considered miscast as a romantic lead partly due to his age. And I totally disagree. Do you, I think he did great in the role. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. If anything, they, I, I think they, um, they could have possibly picked an older actress. That, that, that was, that was going to be my point. The original source material for this movie was the French novel D'Entres Les Morts, and the action was set in Paris. Sir Alfred Hitchcock changed the city to San Francisco, a city well known for its unique topography and hilly landscape, in order to add a further torment to Scotty's life and emphasize the debilitating nature of his vertigo and acrophobia. That would be a terrible place to have vertigo. Where? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Like, yeah. Right, that's what I did. Yeah. On location, filming lasted just 16 days. Really? Okay. Well, I guess they did a lot of it on the set. Yeah, back that's the... true. They spent, what, three months on the set, right? That's what you said? Uh, I don't know. We have to rewind this and listen to it. <laughs> <laughs> a theme song titled Vertigo by Livingston and Evans, Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, was recorded by Billy Eckstein and was reportedly used for promotional purposes, but was not included in the final cut. Word has it that Sir Alfred Hitchcock didn't feel it was appropriate. Hmm. Saul Bass designed the titles and poster for this movie in Anatomy of a Murder in 1959. In 1958 and 59, the image of the body is very similar to both. The name Madeline refers to, of course, to Mary Magdalene of Mary of Magdalia. Migdal is Hebrew for tower. Madeline is the only name of the four main characters from the original French novel that was retained for this movie. Judy was Renee in the book, so it is fascinating that Sir Alfred Hitchcock did not keep the name. After all, Renee equals reborn. Hmm. The original novel by Boyer and Narsajak is entitled Deantris Le Morse, blah, blah, blah. It is a play on Luke's Gospel, chapter 24, verse 5, spoken by the man or gardener after the resurrection who comes to seek the living among the dead. This is said to, amongst others, Mary Magdalene, whose name is now a day used as Madeline, the name of the protagonist in the novel of the movie. The scene outside Elster Shipyard where Sir Alfred Hitchcock makes his cameo appearance was actually by uh, the Paramount Pictures prop department, Gates. Sir Alfred Hitchcock originally wanted to cast Lana Turner in the lead role, but she wanted too much loot. <laughs> it was dropped from consideration, <laughs> which is funny because he hired the other one, then she ended up getting a raise anyway. So I, right. wonder what the, I wonder what it was. Scotty's car is a light gray 1956 DeSoto Firedome Sportsman hardtop coupe. This added to the following of Madeline's gray suit to add further to the dizzying effects of following. Scotty passed an identical gray DeSoto on his right while following Madeline. Madeline's is a green 1957 Jaguar MK8. Midge's is a gray 1957 Volkswagen Carmen Gia Coupe. John Farron, the artist for the nightmare sequence design, also painted the pivotal portrait of Carlotta that transfixes the main characters of this movie. Production designer Henry Bumstead did the joke one of Carlotta with Midge's head. Farron also did a portrait of Vera Miles when she was to play the role of Madeline. Hmm. Kim Novak hated wearing the important gray suit because it felt confining. However, she learned to make it work for her as she saw it as a symbol of Madeline's character. Scotty's house is located at the corner of Lombard and Jones Streets. The exterior remained unchanged until about 2013 when the owners did an extensive remodel. 
They wanted to add a front wall to screen out the noise from the schoolyard across the street. Both the interiors and exteriors of Ernie's restaurants were filmed on set, although the restaurant was a San Francisco landmark which closed its doors in 1999. Ranked number one on the American Film Institute's list of the 10 greatest films in the genre of mystery in June 2008. Scotty wears suits of four separate colors in the movie, blue, blue-gray, gray, and brown. This is a collection that would be considered typical for a professional bachelor of the era. The McKittrick Hotel exterior shots were filmed at the abandoned Portman Mansion at 1007 Gow Street in San Francisco. It was demolished in 1959. So that's another interesting... The the fact before, it's another interesting thing about costuming in general. Um, It's a little easier to capture, like, in the time you're in... um, but when when you have to like dive into sort of the past, you have to look up you know fashion trends and such. It's like okay, what was popular then for this type of person, and what type of person is this character? And it really just shows the depth that pe- that they go into when they think of costuming, right? And not only that, but before that, when you know they're passing just the cars on the street as he's telling her how they he used certain cars to just yep. capture the sense of vertigo. The building exterior used for Madeline's apartment building is located at 1000 Mason Street across the street from the Fairmont Hotel. Sir Alfred Hitchcock had originally opted for another location for the famous staircase sequence, but associate producer Herbert Coleman's daughter, Judy Lanini, suggested that the mission at San Juan Batista, the location that was eventually used as a more suitable location for filming. The average shot length, 6.7 seconds. Voted number two in Total Film's uh, 100 Greatest Movies of All Time list in November 2005. Kim Novak was borrowed from Columbia Pictures for the production in exchange for a payment of $250,000 by Paramount Pictures to Columbia Pictures and the agreement that James Stewart would co-star with her in Bell, uh, Bell, Book, and Candle in 1958. The director trademark, uh, Carlotta and Madeline have spiral hairstyles and Judy's hair color is significant. The post-production period as early 1958 was consumed with retakes, editing, and the creation of special effects shots involving models and matte paintings, particularly of the all-important Bell Tower. Bernard Herrmann wasn't able to conduct his score for this movie. Muir Matheson conducted Herrmann's score for this movie. Because of this, the music score in the movie lacks Bernard Herrmann's personal sound, which he applied in every score he conducted. Very interesting. I think. So he, I, I guess there's like a signature sound. That right, comes with and him. I think he had another... Um, another project going on or somewhere he couldn't do it. I, w- I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. In 2007, the American Film Institute ranked this as the number nine greatest movie of all time. As with most Sir Alfred Hitchcock movies, the filming went relatively smooth. Hitchcock avoided surprises, preferring to have every detail planned out in advance. Extensive keyboard, uh, storyboarding in most sequences assured that his trusted production staff would know what was expected of them. So it's very interesting. So you get... You, you kind of really get two types of directors. You have a director like Alfred Hitchcock. Everything is already planned. It has a purpose. It, yep, it has a purpose, so on and so forth. And then you get directors who there's a lot of ad-libbing. There's a lot of improv. There's a lot of – sometimes you'll even get a scene that they're like, this would be a great scene. Let's add it in right now and film it. So, But not only that, but with Hitchcock, he could do both. Because if you remember in Psycho, he didn't even let them know the ending. That's true. Yeah, and this one he has every detail planned out. This psycho, he'd only give him a little bit at a time. Exactly. So it, that just shows you how great of a director he was because he could do it both ways. Exactly. That and he was—he really did want to keep that ending under wraps. <laughs> oh, <man. laughs> the, the links he went through. Uh, Kim Novak did not have to screen test for this movie. 
1989, this movie was added to the National Film Registry by the United States Library of Congress. Hmm. The famous gray suit worn by Kim Novak is now owned by film expert and Sir Alfred Hitchcock biographer Frederick Ciano, uh, Ciano and actress si- Simeon, or Simon Peterson, professionally known as Arlene Fontaine. Hmm. The brand of shoe that Scotty forces Judy to buy in Razanoff's is Delman. The similarity of the plot theme of this movie and Beyond Oblivion in 1956, shot in Buenos Aires, obsessed all Argentinian movie busts for decades. Finally, the request question was explained. The link between both movies and the novel Brugas La Morte in 1893 of the Belgian writer George, Georges Rodenbach, Hugo del Carriel, adapted it directly. Sir Alfred Hitchcock indirectly through a French novel titled *The Entry Les Mortes* in 1944 that its authors Pierre Boulet and Thomas Nordick hatched a childish police plot about the double tragedy of Rodenbach. Hmm. Joseph Cotton, L. G. Cobb, and Everett Sloan were also under the consideration for the role of Gavin Elster. The heavy metal band Faith No More used this movie as the basis for their music video of *Last Cup of Sorrow*. Huh was voted the 19th greatest film of all time by Entertainment Weekly, included among the American Film Institute's 1998 list of the top 100 greatest American movies. Sir Alfred Hitchcock hired Maxwell Anderson to write the first draft of the screenplay titled Darkling, I Listen, but it was rejected by Hitchcock. In 2002, named by Posif France as one of the 50 best movies of the last 50 years, Critics' Choice Number 2, Readers' Choice Number 4. The characters played by Kim Novak and Barbara Bel Geddes never met. Hmm. That's you know that's that's strange being on a movie like that and just never yeah and then never that's really strange. Um, but I I, I, I they're talking about it in the movie yeah and I, yeah, yeah no I, I get you I, the, yeah. I, it took me a minute uh, for the German market this movie was dubbed three times for the original theatrical release in 1959 by Paramount Pictures for the re-release in 1984 by Universal Pictures and again in 1999 for the restoration again by Universal Pictures. Only the 1999 version has been used on home video releases. Interesting. By the way, uh, I don't know if you have this fact, but uh, the entry Les Mortes means from the dead. The translation for that is from the dead. If well, well, you welcome to the podcast. <laughs> you, you know, all of our uh, Spanish listeners are like, well, duh. <laughs> well, some people don't. I know. Some I know. people don't. Thank you for your input, Terrence. Uh, included among the 1,001 movies you must see before you die again. Uh, when we released in theaters in 1984, it was rated PG. But on home video releases after the end credits, it says rated PG-13 by the MPAA, despite having the PG rating at the back of the DVD and VHS. Hmm. This movie is included on Roger Ebert's Greatest Movies list. And for those of you that listen uh, and remember Cisco and Ebert, I know Terrence is probably too young, but um, that, that's quite an honor to be on that list. According to his Chris Marker's essayist films, Sans Solel, it was Marker's favorite movie. Background plates and second unit work were done in San Francisco during production delays. In her hotel room, Judy shows Scotty a photograph of her father. He's standing in front of a store, holding an upright pitchfork in his hand. The image recalls the famous painting American Gothic. On the window behind him, one can see that this was his hardware store. However, the image is cropped such that the actual words one sees are Barton's War. Hmm. Ferguson's back problems are probably due to injuries sustained from the opening rooftop dangling. Most likely, he was rescued uh, by the dropping onto a net. 
Midge's reference to the Canterville Brassier is no doubt a reference to Howard Hughes. Another interesting tie-in is that Barbara Bell Geddes' father was the industrial designer Norman Bell Geddes. Hmm. For the viewer of this film, focuses on uh, the implications of the active-looking, passive looked at split in terms of sexual difference and the power of the male symbolic encapsulated uh, into the hero, so that erotic involvement with the cinema's audience spectator's own look uh, boomerangs. The spectator's fascination is revealed as an illicit voyeurism as a narrative contact in tax the process and pleasures that he, the spectator himself, is exercising and enjoying. Hence, the spectator, viewing the film, lulled into a false sense of security by the apparent legality of his surrogate, what Jimmy Stewart sees through his look and finds himself, the film viewer, exposed as complicit, caught in the moral ambiguity of looking. Uh, Laura Mulvey, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema in Screen, 1975. Hmm. That was a bunch of words. So here's what's interesting. Uh, that is also a bit portrayed in uh, the intro of Psycho. Uh, when, you know, the, you got the pen in through the window, you kind of get that. Uh, they they kind of portray that same feel of voyeurism, right? And so you, you get this sort of almost signature thing from Hitchcock doing that sort of shot uh, to portray that. It's very interesting. The only one of Sir Alfred Hitchcock movies in which the killer is not punished. An ending in which Scotty and Midge hear news over the radio of Gavin Elster being sought by the police was filmed at the demands of the American Production Code Administration, but ended up not being used. Hmm. Audrey Hepburn, you know who that is? Yeah. Expressed interest, an interest in playing the dual roles of Judy and Madeline. Huh. Numerous uses of repetition and reflection throughout this include... The mirror on the way out of Ernie's restaurant, Scotty sees Madeline reflected in it right after he has seen her for the first time. The numerous reflections and repetitions of Madeline throughout, including at least two women whom Scotty mistakes her for her. The metaphorical or dream mirrors that Madeline describes as lining the corridor of her life. Midge paints herself into the portrait of Madeline's ancestor and in one shot sits next to the portrait as if doubled. After showing Scotty the portrait, Midge sees herself reflected in the glass of the window, Judy as Madeline's reflection. Madeline as repetition uh, or reflection of her ancestor. Scotty repeating his former life. Judy falls from the tower to her death the same way Madeline did. There is a motive of spirals in this movie as literal shapes in the opening credits. It has the more abstract shape of the movie's plot as well as the shape of the pivotal tower staircase. So this is another just really attention to detail that, you know, right. and, and the details that were put in, you know, via Alfred Hitchcock. And it's just, it's really amazing. Uh, all these, these small things that are everywhere, but you can easily miss it if right. you're not paying attention. It was rumored and even written in Sir Alfred Hitchcock's script notes that Kim Novak dubbed the last line of the movie, which was delivered by the nun. However, she denied this in an interview. Hmm. Sir Alfred Hitchcock had contemplated editing Judy's flashback sequence, which reveals that she and Madeline are one and the same. Hitchcock was worried that audience would lose interest in the movie if audience knew this twist early. Two screenings for critics were subsequently held in New York City, one with the flashback and the other without it. With the flashback, critics called it Hitchcock's best movie. Without it, critics called it one of Hitchcock's worst movies. (laughs) With that in mind, the flashback was retained in the final movie. And you know what? When I was watching, I was like, man, is this this her? You know what I mean? Because I was like, what's going on? Right. It's it, it, so good. Uh, the words power and freedom are repeated three times in the movie. Number one, at the beginning, Madeline's husband longs for the old San Francisco because there was more power and freedom. Hmm. Two, at the Argosy bookstore, Pop Libel explains that uh, in Carlotta's time, a man could just throw a woman away because he had more power and freedom. Number three, during the climax of the movie, John suggests that after the murder was completed, Gavin left Judy because he had more power and freedom. 
Originally in the book on which this movie was based, it is revealed that Judy and Madeline are the same person, or Madeline. Sir Alfred Hitchcock decided to change this and reveal it just after the introduction of the character of Judy in order to create a sense of suspense in this movie rather than the surprise at the end. This film contains many echoes of Hitchcock's later movie Psycho, which we've already covered, mm-hmm. a prolonged sequence of sedately driving a car through the countryside, a receptionist gesture at some keys on a key rack, which indicates the empty rooms. Uh, the leading lady writes a note only to rip it to piece, the paper to pieces, a special sequence designed by Saul Bass featuring the huge close-up of a woman's eye, then zooms out again. The leading lady is killed about halfway through the movie. A detective and his female associate visit a local retail store to make inquiries. Uh, watched from above, the detective climbs a carpeted staircase up to a landing to seek a lady who isn't there. A dead woman is dramatically revealed, and a doctor gives his expert opinion on the psychosis which ails the leading man. So we're, we're looking at a lot of elements that he saw made the film work, and he's like, I, I must reuse these elements, and he did, and it worked. <sighs> Perfectly. Um... When the manager of the McKittrick Hotel first appears, we hear her say yes to Scotty off screen. And the next shot, a moment later, we see her mouth a word without any sound. <laughs> In the first scene of Midge's apartment, the shadow of the boom mic is visible on the wall above Scotty's head as if he gets up from the couch ready to leave. It that, rises as he does. That darn boom mic. Every time. <laughs> every right? time. It's in a lot of the older movies. <laughs> it really is. It's uh, difficult. Yeah. Gavin Elster mentions that the speedometer of his wife's car indicates she had driven 94 miles. This should be the odometer, not the speedometer. An odometer measures distance, and the speedometer measures speed. Hmm. Gavin Elster mentions that Carletta Valdez was 26 when she killed herself. However, her gravestone says that she lived from December 3rd, 19, or 1831 to March 5th, 1857. That would make her 25, not 26. I can't catch all those little details, <laughs> I guess. At the Redwood Forest, Madeline asks Scotty if the Redwoods are the oldest living things. He replies, yes, but bristlecone pines are the oldest living things. They live up to 5,000 years, and Redwoods only up to about 2,000 years or so. You don't hear about those, though. You just hear about the Redwoods. Right. I mean, that's the famous thing. They're hard to miss. Did you ever oh, go to the Redwood Forest? No, I didn't. I really... Uh, and I, I, I still really will. To. Um, it's, it's on my to-go list. I mean, because <laughs> obviously the pictures look amazing and stuff, but it cannot Incredible. Help, uh, compare to seeing it in person. When Scotty and Judy go shopping at Razzlemore's, a clerk comments that a nearby model wears Judy's dress size. The model is at least four dress sizes smaller than Judy. It's surprising that an, unex- an experienced clerk would make such a mistake. Yeah. When Scotty takes Madeline, Madeline out of the water, her shoe is off. When they reach the pier, Madeline has both shoes on again. Okay. Both times the main characters drive to the old mission, the wide shot showing them drive on the right side of the road. However, all shots inside the car show them driving on the left side of the road. This is because the US-101, where filming took place near San Juan Batista, is split with two lanes in each direction by a grove of eucalyptus trees. The film shows only one of the roads' directions, giving the appearance that Scotty and Madeline are driving on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> That's interesting. I'm, I'm actually surprised they pulled off uh, filming on the 101. It's heptic. Yeah, but this was a long time ago. That's true, yeah. But I feel like it's always been busy. (laughs) (laughs) During the opening scene when Scotty hangs onto the rain gutter, the tiling of the rooftop he slid down changes from flat wood tilling to half cylindrical brick tilling when the police officer returns to try to save Scotty. Close-up shots of the police officer show half cylindrical brick tilling or tiling, whilst the medium shots of the officer and Scotty hanging on show flat wooden tiling. When Scotty watches Judy on the street talking to her friends outside the flower shop, the same sailor walks past in the same direction from right to left twice within 10 seconds. (laughs) So that's just a little extra faux pas. (laughs) 
As Madeline, uh, Madeline leaves the florist in her Jaguar, Scotty follows her in his 1956 DeSoto with license number HAF376. However, 54 minutes into the movie, he follows her again, but the camera car, a similar DeSoto with Scotty at the wheel, passes the HAF376 license DeSoto, which is erroneously parked at the curb. So they must be in the wrong car. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, typically when you have a vehicle in a film, you'll have multiple versions of it. When Scotty and Madeline are on the coast, she's wearing a white coat and it, with a gauzy black scarf. The scarf is arranged differently in different shots and sometimes is missing entirely. Hmm. In the scenes that follow Judy putting on the gray dress, the headboard light on her bed disappears and reappears. When Madeline, or Madeline, I keep calling her Madeline, uh, <laughs> wakes up at Scotty's bed, there are two chairs on either side of the doorway as Scotty exits his bedroom. When he re-enters the room, one chair is missing and the other has moved. When Madeline is in Scotty's apartment after he rescued her from the bay, he offers her two cushions to sit on in, f- in front of the fireplace. When he picks up the cushions, they are green. In the next shot, when the cushions are shown hitting the floor, they are gold. When the cushions are shown lying in front of the fireplace after Mad- Madeline-, Madeline has fled, they are green again. Hmm. You know, how how's that happen? I mean, you yeah. have a couch there. I mean, that you would think. <laughs> you think, it, think it'd be the same. I mean, maybe someone else was using this set. I have, I have no idea. I, how, I mean, I, I understand the other ones because they're very small things. But, you know, your prop department, you had one job. <laughs> uh, when the manager of the McKittrick Hotel is walking Scotty to Madeline... Madeline's room, the door is cracked open. A close-up shows the door closed and the manager proceeds to open it. As Scotty parks alongside Madeline in front of his apartment, his car, actually the camera truck, cuts across several parking spaces. When the angle changes and Scotty is shown stepping from his car, it is parked within one parking space. I noticed that when I watched it. Uh, When Scotty watches Madeline walk into the Mission Dolores, there's a mirror on the right front fender of his car. A later shot, there's no mirror there. Scotty is standing on the top of a step stool when he faints and falls. In the next scene, Midge catches him after he falls about only one foot. Based on the height of the stool, he should have fallen at least three feet. As mm. Scotty turns into the flower shop alley, the wall to his right has no windows. When he enter- exits his car, windows have appeared. <laughs> when Scotty and Ma- uh, Madeline are talking on the beach, there is a tree between them. Madeline puts her left arm around the tree, but then without having her, with, without her having moved, she has her back to the tree. When Scotty gets out of his car in front of the hotel, his window is down. In the continuing shot, as he walks away from the car, the window is closed. While Scotty is spying on Madeline in the art museum, the furniture and artwork in the gallery, seen through the open doorway next to Carlotta's portrait, is rearranged between shots. I feel like there's more like little tiny changes throughout this movie than any other movie we've covered. Right. <laughs> as Judy, and especially for a Hitchcock movie, you know what yeah. I mean? As Judy uh, packs to run away, the breast section of uh, Madeline's gray suit and her closet are popped out in one shot and pushed in in another. Before and after Scotty slides off the road or uh, off the roof and hangs onto the gutter, there are two views of him shown at 90 degrees apart. But in both cases, the background view remains the same. When Scotty buys Judy a flower from the street vendor across from Razanoff's, they cut to a studio close-up of them that include a large bunch of purple carnation, which Judy brushes against as they leave. But when the scene returns to the location shot, the flower bunch is nowhere to be seen. Hmm. The DeSoto that Scotty drives early clear, drives clearly has no rearview mirror during the close-ups and interior shots, yet it has a rearview mirror as he's getting back into the car after watching Madeline Elster purchase the flower bouquet and he... Uh, as he exits the car on the passenger side to follow her into the Mission Dolores Cathedral. 
When Madeline enters the church, she leaves the door wide open behind her. Scotty follows her only moments later, and the door is closed. He has to open it, and then he has to deliberately pull it shut as he enters, unlike Madeline. The ice cubes in Gavin and Scotty's drinks disappear. <laughs> After Ma- You should have got it done in one take, right? I know, right? Uh, after Madeline has talked to Scotty outside his flat and got into, his, uh, into her car, a pedestrian is just about to cross the street in the background. The camera cuts back to Scotty following her immediately, but the pedestrian has disappeared. In the various shots inside Scotty's apartment, the portable television set next to the couch changes direction, sometimes facing the couch, sometimes facing the bedroom. The book display in the bookshop window changes between the entering and exiting of the shots. Hmm. The parked cars opposite the alley behind the flower shop uh, change when the camera's point, uh, camera point of view. When Judy and Scotty are talking to the man in the bookshop, the pins in the man's jacket pocket change position, and the cigarette burns down far too quickly. When Madeline walks out of the art museum and continues on to throw flowers in the bay before she jumps in and is taken out of the water by Scotty, she has no purse. After she walks up to Scotty, or wakes up to Scotty's and, and puts on her robe whilst her clothing is drying, she asks for her heart hairpins and purse which belonged to her. Perhaps she left the purse in the car when she jumped in the bay, but most women would not go into a museum dressed in a suit and gloves and leave their purse in a car. Yeah. In Ernie's restaurant, there are two famous profile shots of Kim Novak. In the second shot, however, shots later in production, there is noticeably less background scenery visible. Hmm. The amount of sunlight and shadows in the alley behind the flower shop as first uh, as first Madeline and then Scotty walk towards the door. When Midge and Scotty's doctor discuss how long it takes Scotty to recover, the doctor has his hands folded and arms extended. In the very next shot, his arms are folded across his chest. When Jimmy follows Kim down the alley to the florist, the alley is in full shade. When Jimmy gets out of his car to follow her two seconds later, the alley is half sunlit. As the camera moves away from Scotty standing at the edge of the tower, the shadow of the camera can be seen for a split second on the outer wall of the tower. On the Alfred Hitchcock Masterpiece Collection DVD, the image is cropped so the shadow cannot be seen. Hmm. A hand mysteriously rises from behind a gate over James Stewart's left shoulder as he follows Kim Novak and waves at the camera <laughs> about 55 seconds into the mission Dolores Graveyard scene. Maybe it was on purpose to create more of a Madeline spirit by Hitchcock. That's really funny. <laughs> Can you imagine? Just the kid. Now I'm curious. <laughs> like, was it on purpose? I don't know. I'm going to go back and see that. Uh, Scotty and Judy drive through a grove of eucalyptus trees that is located south of San Juan Batista on, on their way there from San Francisco. When Scotty is following Madeline whilst they are driving, they both turn left in their cars past a no left turn sign in the intersection. <laughs> Carletta, Madeline's great-grandma, was born in 1831 and died in 1857 as indicated on her gravestone. This would place her grandmother's birth around 1850, her mother's birth around 1870, and Madeline's birth around 1890. This would then make her around 68 years old when the story takes place. Instead of 25 or 26 that she's supposed to be. Hmm. So more... There could have been that older actress she was wanting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Some of the road shots from inside the car shows the car driving on the left side of the road. This suggests that some of the support work was done in the UK. Significantly, perhaps the music was conducted by Muir Matheson, a British conductor. Detectives in San Francisco are not called detectives, but are referred to by their ranks, such as sergeant and more often inspector. Okay. Yeah, Did you that know that? Sense. Did you ever get pulled over by an inspector? No. Gadget? I mean, they, they, typically, they don't do uh, traffic, and obviously they'll do um, – it depends on what department they're in. You know, you got inspectors for homicide, you got inspectors for narcotics, and so on and so forth. Oh, okay. That's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> Madeline enters her hotel without being seen by the desk clerk and disappears from her room only moments after Scotty sees her standing in the window. The audience is allowed to believe that this is a manifestation of the supernatural, specifically Madeline's possession of a dead ancestor, but that is later proven to be untrue. 
Scotty and Midge were supposed to have gone to college together, but Barbara is much more younger than Jimmy and looks much more younger than him in the movie. Scotty is retired from the police and looks at least 10 years or more older than Midge. In the opening rooftop chase, the crook and the officer and Jimmy jump across from one rooftop to another. The distance is no more than five to six feet, and yet when the officer falls, the shot follows him uh, on the ground buildings are a full alley width apart, at least double what the distance they supposedly jump. Hmm. When Madeline arrives at Scotty's apartment in a post letter, the establishing shot shows only a few bushes by the metal railings. However, in the closer two shots, more bushes are, can be seen against the railings. When Scotty is following Madeline whilst they are driving, Scotty's car turns a couple of seconds before his hand turns on the steering wheel. When Scotty buys new clothes for Judy at Razanoff's, or sorry, Ransohoff's, Judy's um, is shown trying on a pair of shoes. Due to the extremely low camera angle, when Judy walks away from the camera, it's easy to see that the shoes are not new. Their soles are heavily scuffed. <laughs> hey, it's in style, right? Yeah, you exactly. can buy ripped jeans now. Why can't you buy scuffed shoes? <laughs> uh, when Madeline enters the church, she leaves the door open behind her. When Scotty comes to the mo- moments later, the door is fully closed. Blah, blah, blah. We've already covered that. Uh, Scotty gives Madeline a cup of coffee in the first scene together at his apartment. The high camera angle shows the cup uh, his uh, shows that the cup he hands her is empty. When Scotty and Madeline are driving on a forested highway, the car appears to be on the wrong side of the road. Madeline enters the McKittrick Hotel and the sky is overcast. When she appears in the window on the second room floor, she is clearly illuminated as from sunlight through a district shadow uh, through a distinct shadow against a light background while the rest of the shot remains illuminated modestly i will say that is one of the absolute most difficult if not impossible things to nail and that is sunlight and weather uh when it comes to filming especially if you're filming outside for long periods of time exactly like nowadays it's a little easier because you can you know uh fill those in with like special effects and whatnot but i mean especially back then it's it was so difficult because especially when you're dealing with rain, that's right. the apps. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Towards the end of this movie, uh, Madeline Esther is heard uh, is heard to scream as she falls from the bell tower to her death. It's later revealed that she was impersonated by Judy Barton, who ran up to the top of the tower where Gavin Elster had already murdered his wife by breaking her neck. Then, as he lets the body fall, he muffles Judy so she won't scream. So basically, you hear her screaming as she falls, but he has already snapped her neck, and yep. supposedly. Um, Madeline is screaming, but he puts his hand right over her mouth. As yeah. as goes, so there's no way that she could have been the one screaming. Exactly. So Terrence, let's talk about the ending of this movie. Oof. All right. Um, I, you know, the ending came such abrupt. It did. Um, you know, they're they're up on top of the bell tower. If you haven't seen this movie, make sure you watch it before I go. You, you, listen, you obviously heard part of this, but I forgot yeah. to say that at the beginning. But uh, the. <sighs> I was so confused, you know. She tells him everything, and I thought Jimmy Stewart was, you know, uh, was about to kill her personally. Yeah. Uh, but no, he, he just like backs up, you know, and they're talking. And then out of nowhere, you know, that nun comes walking out and says that line, and then she falls out the window, I guess. Yeah. And then Jimmy Stewart goes over there and stands over the window, and I didn't know if he was going to jump or what he was going to yeah. do. You know? I mean, I was kind of torn. What's happening here? Can you shed your thoughts on this? So I haven't done a deep like I I'm I, I suppose I could say I'm just, it's been a while since I've seen this movie but I was just and still am confused about the ending of the movie uh, but I would like to eventually rewatch it and sort of give it an analytic view uh, to like break it down that way uh, but as far as as the ending goes I'm sure um, there was something that was intended or maybe it was intended to be confusing if that makes sense like sort of you can interpret the ending how you want um, but there's no definitive 
end. As as far as like you know who fell and, right. and, and or if he who pushed her, yeah, exactly. But what was I, but what was ironic died. about yeah. this whole thing is the doctor that the at the beginning the wife that the the one that Jimmy Stewart falls in love with that he's trolling and falls out the window or whatever. Yeah, um, the doctor is the one that hired him because he thought since he was a retired police detective that it would help him with his vertigo. Yep. So at the end of this movie, he does. Uh, Overcome his fear, you know, the vertical yep. and heights and all that. As so the doctor did the tower, help, yeah. but also, uh, not only does he lose this lady again tragically, mm-hmm. um, the bad guy's free. The doctor's gone. You know, I mean, oh, one, yeah. he's wanted exactly, but he did his job, and you know. So go ahead, Terrence. Give me your opinions on this movie. So as I've said before, the, I really enjoy this movie. Uh, I always have. Um, it's it's one of my absolute favorite Hitchcock films. Uh, I would probably say I've watched this one more than I have watched Psycho. I enjoy them both, um, but I have watched this one more really? frequently. Yeah, um, just because of the way the the story is told, and and I really do love the cinematography in this. It's it's with that, especially with that particular shot, uh, as far as you know, moving the camera while zooming in or out to catch that feel of vertigo. Uh, very, very, very well done. Uh, very good movie. It's an absolute must-watch for anyone who's a fan of Hitchcock, anyone who's a fan of unique cinematography processes. Twist endings. Twist endings. There's so many reasons to watch this movie. And especially because it is one of the less well-known films that he's done. If you haven't seen it at this point, which you should have, but if you haven't, <laughs> I definitely recommend you have uh, recommend it to anyone who, like I said, is into those things. I, I would say it's a tragic love story. It is. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, I'm sitting there watching it the other day and, and my daughter comes in and she just sits down and she's, she's like, what's going on? You know, and we're sitting there watching <laughs> it and then we get to the ending and she's like, what happened? <laughs> I was like, I really don't know what happened. But it was a good movie. You know, if it can captivate a 14 year old little girl absolutely yeah. um, then it can captivate anybody especially this um, generation right it's like the attention span gets shorter she shorter. was <laughs> she was a name of so was I I was like man you yeah. know and I love Jimmy Stewart and you know most people know him one of my favorite movies of all time is Shenandoah okay yeah. um, if you haven't seen that that is a western he's in it's fantastic I mean he was in um, what's that Christmas movie uh, It's a Wonderful Life yep uh, most people know him for that, but um, he has done so many movies. I'm sure we'll cover a lot more of his oh, movies yeah. as we go along. For his movies, this would be my favorite. Right. Yeah. So, Emily, I hope we did your movie justice. Uh, thank you for being uh, one of our first listeners and actually keep listening to us. Um, we, we hope we did your movie justice. Uh, we can't thank you enough for uh, staying with us all the way from Delaware. We're just a couple of Hoosiers over here from Indiana. <laughs> um, also... Um, if you have any questions, comments, uh, you can reach us at the Tragedy of Cinema, all one word, at gmail.com. Uh, we also have an Instagram, uh, Tragedy of Cinema. Uh, we also, we're working on a Facebook uh, page. I'm trying to find somebody that would like to be the moderator. So if you'd like to be the moderator of that page and help us control what goes on there, let us know. Um, also, we're looking at doing um, Patreon. We're trying to come up with some cool ideas that we can do to. Uh, for to help further the podcast, maybe some live shows, some calls, some autographs of me or Terrence. You know, not that they're worth anything, but <laughs> not yet, <laughs> not yet, <laughs> not ever. Um, you know, we're working on a new design for our logo, a new logo for us. So we, we might be doing some t-shirts, some hats. Uh, we got some cool stuff coming. Um, also, you can find us on Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play Music, TuneIn, um, iTunes, and Podbean. 
I'm still waiting to hear from iHeartRadio. They're kind of making me mad, so maybe we just won't use them. Yeah. Um, so um, as, as we said, uh, June is Superhero Month, so we will be doing another uh, podcast, hopefully tomorrow. Um, it is going to be on my favorite superhero of all time, and probably one of my favorite. The sequel to the, the one that we're going to be doing is probably my favorite movie of all time. Uh, superhero movie, that is. Um, and we're going to be doing a, a Superman with Christopher Reeve. And I think that he he will always be Superman to me. I mean, yeah. no matter who plays him, I think he just he just knocked it out of the park. You know, just pretty boy looks. I feel, I feel like once uh, an actor nails a role as a superhero, they are is the first actor to nail it. They are now cemented into that sort of character. So you, when you think of Superman, you think Christopher Reeve. Oh, when you think absolutely. of Wolverine, you think of Hugh Jackman. Right. And now, when you think of like Iron Man, you think. Of Robert Downey Jr. Exactly. Right. So, but you know, and, I, and for those that don't know, uh, Christopher Reeve was uh, tragically injured in a horseback uh, mm-hmm. thing where I think the bee stung the horse and he flew off and I think ended so, up paralyzing yeah. him for the rest of his life. And you kind of wonder, you know, he did four Superman films. I wonder how many more he would have actually been able to do. Probably a lot more, to be right? honest. Yeah. Um, especially in today's age, I'd love to see him as an older Superman. You know, like Kingdom Come. He probably would have definitely cameoed at the oh, very definitely. least in yeah. anything Superman, right? I, I mean, mean, he cameoed in like Smallville and all. But with that, yeah. we'll, we're getting into it. Yeah. We ain't got time to get into this. Well, look, this has been a longer episode than we planned, but we wanted to make sure. We gave our first listener story, Emily. We wanted to give her everything that we could find on this movie. So, Emily, if we've missed anything, uh, drop us a line and let us know. Absolutely. So, with that being said, hopefully we'll be uh, you'll be hearing from us again shortly, um, probably tomorrow. Um, if not, um, next week might be a little rough. It is my 20th wedding anniversary, but we're trying yeah. to get this stuff uh, pre-recorded out there to you guys so you don't we don't you miss a beast. And if not, we'll just prolong the superhero week into the first week of July or whatever. Yeah. So we'll we'll make it up to you. We promise. Um, and with that being said, I think that's a wrap. Yep. And, and cut. cut.